0: Well, it's great to be here together, once again, finishing up our last sermon on our series of forgiveness. And we are going to discuss various components this morning to tie up a few things as we think about the subject of forgiveness. But I hope that you, as through the course of the series, that you have in your own mind began to elevate the reality of redemption in your life. Where this is not some passing circumstance that occurred on your behalf which resulted in blood being spilt on the cross by Jesus Christ. It is not just some circumstance in event history where we say, you know what? Oh, that, that just occurred. It's something we desire to remember and to, to remember in such a way that it impacts the way that we forgive. Because Jesus Remember, Jesus was all about dying so that we could be forgiven. And that opportunity of forgiveness could permeate our lives as a mark of this. Well, one of the things that you know if, if you just recognize life in general as another sinner is that don't you value the Lord's forgiveness, right? But you also value in tandem with that, the forgiveness of the of, of another Christian brother or sister. When they say those words, as we have mentioned, I forgive you, and they make those promises to themselves before God, there is a challenge to maintain that heart disposition of forgiveness. And I would say, in many regards, when we think about relational forgiveness, as we have stated over, over and again, Part of most one of the most difficult parts of forgiving is because you don't forget, and it's because you don't forget that you must maintain a discipline of the promise that you committed to when you said those words, "I forgive you." Now, there's something, as as we have uh, really set out to understand and build a theology of forgiveness, that we remember these categories. That vertical forgiveness at the very beginning, uh, when you come before the Lord and God's, your standing before God is unholy, unrighteous. There is no good thing that resides within you. That there is a repentance that needs to take place, a confession of sin before the Lord. That initial calling out of the believer of Romans ten nine and ten, where if you confess your sin, He will forgive you of your sin and he will reinstate he will begin a new relationship with you and his wrath is no longer upon you now you've experienced grace instead of wrath but then as you live your life as a christian don't you like the fact that every single time during the course of this week and last month and the, however many years you've been a believer that and, and, and whatever amount of time you've had to go and you've sinned and then you've went before the Lord, that he's never said to you, oh, I'm not ready yet. Come back another time. He does not display a sense in which he pushes us away, but he desires through this transaction to reinstate the relationship all the time. He, what that tells us, the implication of that, of what it says about our theology and God's perspective of forgiveness is this. He wants us to remain close to him. And he knew that without this relational forgiveness, he knew what kind of people that we were. And the kind of lives we would struggle to live. And forgiveness is that element where we model the very mercies of God. Now, as we head into this last portion, I don't know about you, but this this whole entire topic hits me right where it hurts. Because it is a very big challenge anytime you have been sinned against or offended to have a heart's disposition to say, I don't want to do this. It feels unjust for this person to be forgiven and walk away scot-free as if now we can be fine and everything's kosher with us. There is a sacrifice that you and I make because of what forgiveness has provided. And it's relational. It's something that, that is modeled by Jesus Christ. It's modeled in the way in which you and I display that kind of mercy. But here's one thing that I've found personally. This means I have to be a Christian who is searching the components of my heart, the little small crevices, and ask the Lord, please reveal to me if there is any heart of lack of forgiveness in ways that I would hold anything against a brother or a sister. Or someone in my family to make sure that the relationship is being attended to in a way that would be pleasing to God. It's hard work, isn't it? It's not hard work when you just put it out of your mind and you just say, oh, I don't, I'll just do it if it's necessary. But you and I, it is so necessary for us that repentance and forgiveness is not just an event that occurs in our life, it is a lifestyle in which we live as Christians with a heart reverenced towards God. And that's why when we don't choose to forgive or even trust in the forgiveness that God has brought to us, then we fail to see forgiveness in its capacity the way God has designed it. Now, before we jump into our our text this morning, let's pray, ask God to bless the time, this remainder of this message that we have Today. Bow with me if you will. Father, Lord, when we even contemplate the forgiveness that you offer to us individually, Lord, once being children of wrath and then having been extended the hand of mercy by the work of your Son, Lord, so that that work of the shedding of the sin that would the shedding of blood that would provide forgiveness of sin to the whole world and to be applied into into our lives as we have repented and trusted in you lord we don't deserve it lord but we thank you for it lord we ask that even as we close up our series on forgiveness that we have maybe moved even just a bit closer to understanding just the magnitude of the mercy that you have given to us. Lord, help us never to take it for granted. In your name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible, if you would, turn to a passage where we're going to begin with in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to discuss three questions this morning. And when I say common questions concerning forgiveness, uh, you probably in your mind say, there is a whole lot more than three that I have. And so in the course of our development of our, of our theology of forgiveness, I'm not so foolish to, to under, not to understand that there are many more questions that are connected to this. I would really encourage you, as you think about checking out various components in the library, just right out here in the foyer, that you might just, if you're really thinking and want to think through this even more, pick up this book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. Wonderful uh, book that helps extend this conversation, and if you have never read *The Peacemaker* by Ken Sandy, the, this is a very helpful resource. And I, and I think they're going to bring you—they're going to bring you to the Word of God and help you shape this perspective. But I think resources that bring us to God's Word are critical. But there are a lot because there are a lot more questions than just three. We're going to cover a few this morning that always tend to come up as as a subject of forgiveness. Uh, is spoken about and in the books they'll talk about uh, a number of different other ones as well but one of the first ones uh, that does come up uh, and I mentioned this uh, as we're remembering our definition of forgiveness remember this forgiveness is the act of pardoning sin with a heart of mercy for the sake of restoration in order to glorify God by how by putting his mercy on display Let me just pause there for a moment and just ask you a simple question. Are you committed to growing as a merciful person? Not only in forgiveness, but also in your forbearance. Does everyone around you, their their preferences, irritate your soul to such a degree that you have a hard time living in and around people that God has come to save? Believers, we must grow in this kind of merciful display. But we've been working with this definition. Now, the question, one of the questions that comes up, because you'll notice this as you look at forgiveness and repentance, is that repentance and forgiveness are like two sides of the same coin, Okay, they're not, they are distinct things, but yet they are one thing and they often go hand in hand. When you pardon sin, because when God pardons your sin, because you repent, you become forgiven. Same happens relationally. But then another, this question comes up that people will often ask but how do I know that they're genuine about what they say that they committed to do for me? And, and it comes out in this kind of way where people will say this comment I forgive you, but I don't trust you. And so when we think about this, this is this intersects with this reality in 2 Corinthians 7 because we ask the question if somebody is genuinely forgiven, then what will be the fruits of that genuine repentance? And 2 Corinthians 7, notice this in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives us this statement about. This idea of genuine repentance that is honest, that is sincere. In verse 10, follow with me. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now notice in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, he gives a list of things that you and I ought to look for when there is genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness. Because here's how it often happens in the life of relationships with people. And we're thinking primarily horizontal relationships right now because we know that God has forgiven us, but at times we break our relationships because of sin and offenses that have occurred. And this question always comes and we'll say, well, but I don't see as much change as as I want to see. And because of that, I don't know how much grace or mercy to extend as if that are mutually exclusive. As if I wait and withhold mercy to the degree in which someone grows, and then I give them little breadcrumbs of mercy, could you imagine what that would be like if God only gave us just a little bit of His mercy and then waited for us to do it right and then would prompt us with a little bit more? See, mercy is the willing, is, is the heart attitude that then allows for the reinstatement of that relationship, what we describe as reconciliation, restoration that occurs. Well, what am I looking for when, when genuine repentance and forgiveness has occurred? Notice in the text, he says, there's two different kinds of sorrow. Now, remember we said when we, that sorry, just saying, I'm sorry for things is just not going to cut it. I had given you an illustration of my children standing there when another one would come and say, well, I'm sorry. And the other one would fold their hands and say, for what? I need it. I need it. you to, you know, be clear. Sorry alone was not the goal. It was to say, I'm sorry for violating this and I need you to forgive me for what I have done against you. And we would walk them through. Now, if you're a parent here and you, and you have little children, from the time that our children were little, we started to ingrain this reality of restoring relationships so that we could have a moment of an opportunity, even within broken, broken relationships within the home, to talk about the gospel on a regular basis. I don't, for one minute, think that somehow my three-year-old was sitting there and pondering this theological depth going, yes, dad, I get it all. But I was laying out for them the habitual pattern of what God desired in their relationship so that we could talk about the gospel and say, do you know what, what separates us from God? God. Do you know what hinders our relationship with God and with other people? It's sin, isn't it? It doesn't doesn't feel right, but beyond the fact that it just doesn't feel right, that shame-filled experience, there is a brokenness that occurs when sin happens. It's the way it's always occurred from Genesis chapter 1 and onward. And I would say to them, guys, who came to deal with that kind of brokenness? And they would say, it was Jesus, dad. It was Jesus. And over and over and over again, we could talk about the gospel in the sense of restoring relationships, but even more importantly, where that relationship would be initiated, which is with a repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Notice this in the text, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I bet if you've been living as a Christian long enough, you've experienced both, haven't you? There is a sense in which when we think about worldly sorrow and sorrow saying that it's not going to cut it, meaning sorry, being sorrowful alone and have a feeling of disposition and shame alone does not lead a person towards a genuine repentance. Sorrow from a standpoint? Can we even? You might be thinking to yourself now, after I said that a week ago, like I'm never using the word sorry again. No, you can use the word sorry. But it often, remember, in our day-to-day activity, it often comes out in accidental moments. If I'm rushing off, and you just poured yourself a nice tall glass of milk, and I'm getting all my things ready, and I walk by you, and I bump it with my elbow, and milk splats all over the floor, and then I look at you and say, I gotta go to a meeting. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, there is an accidental sorrow there I'm saying, I didn't intend this and it wasn't sin. And I'm really sorry that I've left you with a mess. And so that you can understand my heart disposition, wasn't like I lined up my elbow on your milk glass as I walked by and thought, this is gonna be interesting. Boom, sorry, (laughs) gotta go, have fun with that. See, Accidental sorry can be used, but understand even that sorry accidentally, accidentally, uh, on accidental issues reveals a heart disposition because you didn't intend to do that. Worldly sorrow, when it comes to this inner heart attitude, is not just oops, I sinned. Sorry, God. Sorry, I got angry. Sorry, I was anxious. You know, oh, sorry, I committed adultery. It is not just sorrow, but the idea of worldly sorrow is, is, is the reality. It's a superficial sorrow. It's a superficial sorrow that's generated still by a selfish gain and it leads you to more of the same sin, which is why the text says it leads to death. If you can all of a sudden say, oh, I feel so bad about this. Well, what are the kind of thoughts that come along with worldly sorrow? Perhaps you can, you, perhaps you can understand them if I put them this way. Oh, I'm just so sorry that I got caught. You know, it's like when I walk upstairs and, and if I say, you're supposed to shut the video game off. And somehow, I have to grab something from upstairs and I see a glow around the doorway. And I open the door and go, what's going on here? And you see that panic-stricken face. Like, what? I'm caught. See, worldly sorrow is more about getting caught in your circumstances and then how it makes you look to other people so worldly sorrow often doesn't take time to deal with the situation. They just feel like they're doing right because they feel a sense of shame. Shame is there for you and I to take it because we are guilty. Remember back in the Garden of Eden? And many times people use this, and I think wrongly so, even when we think about guilt and shame. Guilt is a standing, shame is the feeling. When you sin, you experience both a guilty standing before God, and usually you feel ashamed. But when you harden your heart, the shame starts to go away, but you're still in a, you are still standing guilty before God, whether you feel like it or not. When you harden your heart against the Lord and your conscience is seared, all of a sudden the shame doesn't seem to be as impactful and yet the standing still remains. So what this tells me is when people say things, when it comes to forgiveness, like, well, I just, you make, they're trying to make me feel guilty. Well, what they're trying to do legitimately is they're trying to shame you into a a feeling of shame so that something else would take place. Remember, your standing is, is guilty. The feeling is shame. God provides forgiveness to deal with both guilt and shame so that yes you should look at your sin because that's what godly sorrow does it takes an intense look at the sin that you've done and you repent before the lord and it produces a different disposition towards the sin that you then offended god with and the way that you've offended others perhaps your sorrow is worldly sorrow if your sorrow if your sorrow that you're experiencing is simply because you just disappointed your own personal expectations. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? I'm just so upset at me. I'm just angry at me. It's, it's not you. It's like, I know better than that. Like your own personal expectations sometimes lend you to having a sorrow that's worldly because you're just like, I let myself down. No. Brother, sister, if you sinned, you let God down. You sinned against his holy nature. It's not against you or yourself in which you've sinned. It's before the gaze of a holy God that you then must go back and make it right. Sometimes sorrow, worldly sorrow, is produced because you have such expectations of people and you're so fearful of people on what they think that all of a sudden, that your sorrow is, is all of like, I just disappointed this person and this person and my pastor and my my uncle and my aunt and my close friend and all these people. And I'm just so ashamed of myself. And I just don't know why would I do something like that? Those sorrow, the sorrow that produces a a sense that, that it comes from these personal expectations or the fear of other people is worldly sorrow. Because you're not saying this you're not saying God I'm so ashamed that you provided salvation for me and I just took it for granted. I just sinned in a way in, in a way that I was honestly doing what Paul often says, I would sin so that grace would abound. And I just played so flippantly with my sin and 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 when you're When you're right before God and you desire this sincere, deep relationship, a worldly sorrow is only going to lead you to further practices of sin. We must get beyond that to a godly sorrow. Well, what is that? Well, it's a sorrow. It is a sincere sorrow that is generated by a desire to love God and to change, uh, leading to a change of heart for God's glory. Okay, Over against a superficial sorrow, then there is this sincere sorrow. The sincere sorrow says, I hate my sin. And I hate when I, I sin against a holy God when he has done such wonderful things for me. This spiritual sorrow is this inner heartbrokenness that led you to repentance in the, uh, to, to God the Father. Now, out of that is generated these incredible fruits, which is what we often look for. Did you notice these fruits? There's seven of them in the passage. And I would love to park on each one of them very long, but we would be here a very long time. So I'm not going to do it, but here's what I'm going to do. I want to explain them just briefly to you because we're looking for these when there is genuine repentance and sorrow and when there is a heart readiness to forgiveness, Notice this, fruit number one, there is an earnestness. This word has the idea of to make haste. There is an attitude that, that a genuine godly sorrow and a genuinely repentant spirit who has been forgiven now views whatever sinful offense and sinful disposition someone has had and now they do something different. Instead of prolonging the impact of waiting to deal with their sin, they make haste to the throne of grace and mercy. Have you noticed this about your, yourself? Because I notice it about myself is that there are moments in my, the course of my life where I know that I was wrong. I know that I had sinned. I knew that my, I needed to go before the throne of grace and mercy, and I need to reconcile my relationship with God because I had done something wrong. And yet there's part of me, because of God's holy nature, that I almost am tempted to believe that I just shouldn't go right now. I should clean up my act a little bit so that when I go, I feel like I at least have some reason, like I can be here. I, I, I've spent more time cleaning myself up. When sin occurs and makes a mess, the first place you go is the throne of grace. And this father of mercies and the God of all comfort can comfort your soul. And he can reinstate that relationship when you repent of your sin. And there, and and can I just tell you, make haste to the throne of grace. That is what Hebrews 10 is saying. Since we can be confident in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, let us go boldly before the throne of God. We must do that. Make haste there. But it doesn't just stop there. There is an eagerness that is now, now you notice it in the text, the eagerness is connected with to clear yourself. This is talking about the depth of your confession. You are so godly in your sorrow and so deep in your repentance that you are not willing to leave anything out. This is real heart-centered repentance. This is fascinating to me because it goes so far beyond just behavioristic things that we say. Forgive me for anger. Forgive me for worry. Yeah, we want those, remember? We ask for those, but it goes much deeper because that fruit came from a root. This eagerness now to clear yourself, even in offenses before God and others, is now you say, you know what? What is it? Please help me remember everything that I've done to sin against you, because I don't want this to be broken. I don't want any facet of the relationship to be hindered. Here's partly how this eagerness works out. And I will, and I perhaps have mentioned this before, but at the end of a moment where I've sinned against someone, and all of a sudden I say, here's what I know that I've done. Here's the offense that I've committed. Here's the violation before God. Here's, what I was doing, here's why I was doing it. And yet, I was sinning so fast. I don't perhaps remember all the sin that was associated with the offense. And I'll say, will you forgive me? And, they'll, and usually the answer to that almost all the time is yes. And then I say this, is there anything else that perhaps I have missed? that you could help enlighten my soul in a way that I would be eager and quick to make reconciliation with us because I was sinning so quickly and I was losing my my Christian disposition for the sake of my sin that I bet I probably missed some some things. There's a humility that has to be involved with an eagerness to, to clear yourself because you want, now why would you do that? Because you want to leave nothing that is going to hinder that relationship. That's why dishonesty and distrust of a person who's broken something in a relationship hurts so much. But when they are forgiven and they've genuinely repented, that attitude, that Christian work, that Christian idea of eagerness now comes into play. Is an eagerness to clear yourself. Whatever I've done, please let me know. Now, oftentimes, we don't wanna to get to that point because we, we think we've humbled ourselves just far enough to say, I've already done this and now you want me to open myself up for you to take out the other list that you had? We have to be open. I remember at different moments in my own life where, where this occurred and then I'm, I'm having an argument here and I'm violating this and all of a sudden one of my children are coming and I'm like, go away later. And I'm saying, get away from me right now. And I need to be reminded, do you remember in the midst of our conversation, you had like two or three children come up to you and you just pushed them away and you moved them aside. It's like, no, I don't want to talk to you about this right now. I got this on my mind. I need to be reminded, have you gone back? Have you restored those? Have you made, them, have you made it known that this isn't right? This isn't how you talk. This isn't how, how we do things in the family of God. There must be an eagerness and it will take a Christian disposition of humility. And if you don't want to humble yourselves, I've, I've watched it happen over and over again where people become haughty instead of humble. And all of a sudden they sit there and say, you first, you first, and then I'll think about it. Can I just tell you, be quick to mend relationships. Now your disposition, if there's a genuine sorrow that leads to repentance, it, goes, it, it moves from an earnestness. You make haste. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. And then there's a turning, a indignation. This is the word that is often translated uh, about now. This is the way I look at my sin. I have a, we would understand it in this way. God has a righteous indignation against sin. He hates sin and his his holy wrath is against it. When I am genuinely sorrowful that leads to genuine repentance and I've been forgiven, I'm watching for this, how a person looks at their own sin. Do they look at it as God sees it, as an offense before him, or do they just look at it as some flippant reality that they just happen to accidentally fall into? A genuine person A genuine person looks at their sin and says, I hate my sin. They do what 1 Timothy, where Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. The way that they look at themselves and the way that they look at their sin. They have a righteous indignation. And now they used to look at it. Do you notice this change? Even from when you were were made right before God through your initial judicial forgiveness. You don't look at your sin anymore the same way, do you? You used to look at it as an unbeliever and you, and you thought about partying and going out and doing all the things that the world used to do. And you looked at it and you would say this, you hear world uh, unbelieving people say it all the time. Oh, it's going to be fun. We're going to have so much, we're going to have such a good time. We're going to make so many good memories. But now you look at that same way that you look at that sin and now you go, what was I thinking? That's gross. It's grotesque in the eyes of the Lord. There is a righteous indignation where you are even frustrated that at one moment in your life that you would have been okay with that. There's a righteous indignation and that is a fruit of genuine repentance uh, and and a standing of forgiveness. There's a disposition of fearing God. When you you don't look at your sin the way God does, it doesn't cause you to, to revere God or to, in a sense, the fear here is reverence. You're turning now from a dis, an, an unreverent perspective of your sin to a more reverent disposition to God because he's looking at your life and you wanna be right with him. That is the whole goal of all of these. Now notice, he says it also happens where there's this longing. This, this emphasizes the anticipation of experiencing a full restored relationship as a result of this repentance and forgiveness that has been given. This longing says in your heart, because mercy exists, relationships have the opportunity to be mended. And I long to be right with God and I long to be right with other people. And I'll do whatever I can that's within my within my power, within my control, to do that. There's a change in zeal. You know, you you can understand zeal in the sense of this disposition, this hungry attitude toward, I just gotta have it. And the gotta have it part is I've got to be right with God. I can't look at my sin, I can't look at the forgiveness that was offered to me and is now available to me, as as if now that was just cost nothing. Of course, this, this would eat away at how we look at the redemption that was provided to us by Jesus Christ. But there is a zeal, an intense attitude, or, or this interest of wanting to make things right and you just go after it. And then he says this last one, he says, what punishment? Now this is uh, an interesting way to describe or this, this particular word in the Greek language because it comes out in the interpretation, what punishment? And it almost feels like, well, do I punish myself or what, what punishment is he talking about? Now, what he's trying to describe in, in, in the language is in all interpretations are trying to convey is this idea of justice. Okay, this idea of perspective. I, I want to see justice done. No matter what it is, and let me put it this way. No matter what consequences I have to experience, justice must be done because it's right before God. I have a zeal and a reverence to what is just and holy. So when we use phrases in our life together to say, I feel, or or, I forgive you, but I just don't wanna ever trust you again, it falls short of mercy that paves the way for a restored and reconciled relationship. When a person's attitude is right of their sin, and forgiveness has taken place because of a genuinely repentant spirit, you can look on as another believer and say, I'm gonna watch for this. They want justice done. And you know what that looks like? It looks like when you've been caught in sin, you're not just satisfied with saying, oh, how can I just alleviate all these oppressive consequences that I've accrued for myself? You say, Lord, Even there, you will be with me, even as I have to deal with the consequences of the choices that I myself have made as a result of my sin. But God, I thank you for reinstating me in in your relationship. And I know you'll be with me as I walk through these. It's gonna be hard. It may be a situation where it separates a person from another person as they're waiting to see. But their desire is for whatever is right to be done justice to be served. Now, as you're looking for these, this is often where it intersects with forgiveness. We, we often will see in, in genuine godly sorrow and repentance, you will, you will often see the initial components of a small seed of fruit. But here's the challenge when you ask and you grant forgiveness. Do you see the same kind of fruits if it's genuine, you're gonna see, you would expect different, more uh, growing fruit a month from that genuine repentance. But you'll see an initial growth. Think about it like you plant a seed in the ground, and all of a sudden you begin to have this right disposition, and all of a sudden that seed begins to grow. You start to know it. They start saying things about their sin that they never used to say before. They also start talking and dealing with things in a way they've never used to do with before. That's an initial component. Now what happens when that initial phase of 2 Corinthians 7 of those fruits grows into a full-fledged, beautiful flower that is is known now for a life of reconciliation and restoration? Most of the time we want to wait to see all the fruit happen two months and then we have a hard time in the moment. When it's hard... Forgiveness is hard because it requires a lot of patience at time to allow people to grow. And that's what mercy does. Mercy acts in some sense of this this heart disposition of fertilizer to the soul of that person. Like, they're gonna let me grow. They're not gonna think every single time that they see me doing this or struggling with this, that I've ran back to the deepest depths of my sin. They're gonna help me along and they're gonna be patient with me and they're gonna watch me grow. Christian brothers and sisters, be patient even after you grant forgiveness. Guess what? That genuine repentant spirit is gonna take time to grow in sanctification. They were once entrenched with their sin. Yes, there's gonna be moments where you hear different things and then they're gonna catch themselves like, oh, okay, I I shouldn't say it that way. Okay, how would you say it then? Here's how I would say it biblically. And allow that grace and patience to permeate your life so that you can help them grow instead of becoming a hindrance to their walk with God. See, look for fruit. And I, you know, we say this in the sense, I have to say this in some sense because so many people come to a church and they just say, I don't wanna go to church because all those people are judgy. They just judge people. Here's the problem, he says to judge one another. He says to examine fruit and that's what judging is for the believer. It is judging the fruit. I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store and I go into the food aisle and I go to get some, some fruit, I don't just pick whatever's available. I'm like I'm that annoying person that's standing there that you're standing behind going, are they going to pick something? I'm, I'm looking, examining, and experiencing. I'm saying, no, this is good. Genuine believers do look for genuine fruit. We're supposed to. And that fruit of genuine forgiveness really helps us because as we forgive, what we're allowing then is the patience and grace and mercy to allow these fruits of genuine repentance to grow. And we're willing to talk about it. We're willing to be open about it. We're willing to have a zeal over it. We're willing to have an eagerness to clear ourselves wherever I would get entrenched in any kind of sin again. This becomes really important. Now here's another Question: As we think about it, look for fruits, not only look for fruits of repentance, because that becomes critical. You don't want to be fooled that somebody is really offering you, you a worldly sorrow versus a godly sorrow. So one of the things I would say to you is look for the fruit and be patient enough to wait to see the fruit occur. And when you do that, you're, you're displaying mercy in a way that allows that person to grow in their walk with God and their relationship with you as well. Here's another question. This is a big one. What do I do if someone is hesitant or resistant to ask for forgiveness? And another way of stating this is what do you do if, if forgiveness is a transaction and you only hold one side of the transaction and you go to the bank and the bank is closed and you can't make the deposit? This is a common question when it comes to forgiveness, then what do I do if they are hesitant or resistant to ask forgiveness? Let me add another one that complicates the matter even worse, which I've, which I've dealt with before as well. What do you do if the person in whom the offense or the offender took place is now dead? And that transaction cannot be made because they have passed from this earth and all the sin that they had done to you can no longer be reconciled in relationship before you. Then what do we do? Well, turn to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. We touched on this verse just briefly last week, but Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14, uh, we see a a very helpful passage in Romans, in Romans 12. And, and, and notice what He says in in this particular verse, start in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I remember this verse most prevalent in my upbringing because my mom would use this verse and my grandma would use this verse and say, Josh, when somebody does something to you, if it's your brothers or sisters or anybody, kill them with kindness. (laughs) Heap the burning coals on their head. The reality is, is there something that happens when there's this merciful spirit that someone's willing to display and all of a sudden you say, and I'm going to treat them this way. And yet their spirit is still kind hearted and ready to forgive and merciful to you. You begin to start having something happen and you are ashamed that you would treat someone you love so dearly in that kind of way. Well, guess what? What do you do? There's, there's, these are three different kinds of scenarios, aren't they? What do you do if someone's hesitant? Have you ever been to, went to someone and you said, here's what I did, I committed this offense against you and I, and I know that I've sinned, here's what God's word says, my heart was in the wrong place, I believed this and it was wrong and it came out and I, and I sinned against you and I got upset or I you know, said these words or I communicated in this kind of way. Have you ever had it where somebody's looked at you and said, I just... I just don't know if I can do that right now. So often people will just, so often people will just say, oh yeah, sure. I'll forgive you, but they don't really mean it. They're doing it just because they, like they just want to end the fight. Husbands and wives do this all the time. Oh, do you forgive me? Of course I forgive you. Right, let's, what else do we need to do now? I just don't like the tension. They don't go beyond a surface level and they don't get to the root of the issues, but all of a sudden they're hesitant. Now, remember when we said early on in the series, I said, if all of a sudden you come, because here's the mandate. Jesus says, if your brother sins or if your sister sins and you rebuke him and they repent, forgive. So when you say, I'm not ready and you're not ready to forgive, what are you then doing? You're now contributing to the sin. And now in those moments, I would have to come back and say, I know you're asking forgiveness, but then when you came to me and, and, and said, are, will you forgive me? And then I wouldn't forgive you. And I was hesitant and I put some time between there. I should have done it right away. I knew I was wrong, but I just wanted to make you feel the kind of pain. Why do we wait? Because there's some sense of vengeful spirit that we just want them to feel what we feel. And then kind of look at them and go, you feel that? Yeah, that's what I've been feeling. And you don't like it, do you? Well, now that you've experienced what I feel, now I can forgive. No, forgive. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Don't be hesitant. Don't be resistant. But what if you're on the other side where the person is hesitant and they're having a hard time? Is a struggle with that any different at a moment then struggling like, I know I shouldn't be anxious or fearful, but here I am struggling with anxiousness and fearfulness. Can you have a little patience and grace and say, okay, I don't want you to say something that is disingenuous. I want you to be honest before the Lord. Why don't I, here's what I'll do for you. I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna pray that God will help us and I'm gonna come back in a little while And then maybe maybe we'll be at a a point where we could talk about it. Show patience and grace as people are working through. When you're sinned against in certain ways, it's hard. I don't know anybody who says, "Please sin against me," because I just enjoy it. No one does that. So we should understand that sin hurts. It destroys relationships. And it it sets us back from enjoying the experience that God wants us to have. Well, what are those things? Well, if you have a hesitant person, well, then it doesn't mean you don't address sin. It doesn't mean, but it's how you, you speak the truth in love. You bring grace to those who hear according to Ephesians 4. And you say, you know what? I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna pray for my own soul that I don't get frustrated. Like if all of a sudden now I'm like, I'm, I'm here to admit that I'm wrong. And now you won't even forgive me. Now I'm really upset. And I compound sin with sin. Like God's done all this work in my heart and now I've done it and you won't do it. Now I'm upset. No, you were upset all along. You just weren't really genuine. Humility exposes us in a way, if we can't do it, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, maybe my heart was not in the wrong place. And I'm so thankful at different times for brothers and sisters who would say things like, I need a little bit of time to think through what's going on in my own heart and how I'm wrestling through the offense that has occurred because I'm tempted to say things I shouldn't say. And I think it's better right now if I just spend a little bit of time in prayer. They're not resistant to forgive, but they're knowing that what comes out of their mouth is what's going on in their heart and they need to make sure they're mindful of that. Well, if they're hesitant, be patient because that still can take place. What if they're resistant and they just come to the conclusion, I know there's an offense, I don't care what it is, I refuse to forgive. Jesus has a lot to say about that. Why do you think this is connected with Matthew 18? Because if someone is refusing to forgive over and over and they're caught in an unforgiving state, perhaps for the resistant person, we may even have to say, church discipline is a scenario where where people need to come around him and help him understand the gravity of an unforgiving spirit. This becomes really critical. Why? Well, because vertical forgiveness is a template for horizontal forgiveness. Since God's judicial forgiveness, he doesn't forgive judicially without repentance or relationally without genuine repentance However, what does God do then to the hesitant, even to the resistant? He remains ready. And here's the answer that I would give to people. Commit to to remain ready and willing to forgive at moments notice when that heart disposition of genuine repentance occurs to the other person. I can remember a situation where all of a sudden the offender was dead and the person's response to me was, Am I just now forever in a spot where I'm in a wrong relationship with God and a wrong, because I'm in a wrong, uh, I have, I have unforgiven sin between uh, this person and now I'm just destitute for a bad, bad relationships for the rest of my life. And to be able to share with her, are you ready? Can you be ready to forgive? If they were able to stand here right now, isn't that all that God asks you to do? is to be at peace as far as it depends upon you, which means you have a ready heart attitude to forgive and would do so at a moment's notice because you know that's what God would say to do. Well, what does it look like to maintain uh, a a ready heart? Well, one, it, it looks like, according to Romans 14, you resolve not to be revengeful. You resolve not to be revengeful. This is really hard because we just, in our own heart, We struggle with being like, I just want you to experience something bad as a result of what you've done to me. We resolve not to be revengeful people. What do we do then? Well, we leave. Here's the second thing. You leave room for the wrath of God. Is God not the most just person ever? Does this person then, do they say if someone comes to you, will they just go away scot-free? Do they? Or will they one day stand before the righteous judge of heaven and will have to give an account of all that they have done? Romans 12, 9, Even as you as you think about this, he says, let love be genuine. You still show love. You still show a loving disposition. How does that come out in Romans 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. There is even a sense of personal activity between you and that person where you're not gonna say, I'm gonna go out that door because they're going out that door. You don't see them coming. You say, you know what? I'm gonna say hello to them and I'm gonna love on them and I'm gonna be kind as I'm waiting and having a ready, committed heart to forgive at the moment's notice. Why is this so critical? Because if you don't commit to having having your heart remain ready and willing, let me just tell you, you will be poisoned by bitterness. You will be poisoned by bitterness. And for years and years, when you look at people in relationships, you will have this bitter disposition towards that individual. And all you have to do is say, I am committed to be ready and willing when, the moment they are ready. And in the process, I will show love and I will bless even when people do wrong to me. I'm still going to show a level of kindness because, because of God's mercy towards me. Now, because of the similar attitude of the heart and responses toward the offender, it has often led people at different times to say, well, then it's just forgiveness, right? So you just forgave him with no transaction. And I would say, no, I would say, because forgiveness is a transaction. If we were to say that I can just, if, if it's not about being committed and ready, then I'm moving myself further away. If it's just one, if it's just my disposition, unilaterally to say, I don't need you, instead of a transactional way of thinking about forgiveness, it would move us away to a one-sided event, whether or not there's really genuine repentance at all. And all of a sudden we say, well, I just forgive. Well, I want you to have a heart attitude that's ready. That's what Jesus does with us. He is ready and willing to forgive us This is why 1 John 1, 9, as we have said, is so precious. If you confess your sin, he is faithful. He will forgive it and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He remains ready and willing, which is why we can go before the throne of grace with such an important perspective for us to say, he wants me there. So in answer to that question, what do I do if they're hesitant, resistant, or unable? Will you maintain a heart readiness? That's what God expects of you. And I hope that you can say that about relationships even that are broken now and and you can't deal with them perhaps any longer, but you're maintaining a ready heart before God, then you're right. As far as it depends on you, you're living at peace with God. Let me take this last question. Does forgiving my offender mean remaining in a dangerous or compromising situation for the sake of reconciliation? This is a very looming question when you think about forgiveness being a display of mercy of the heart for the sake of reconciliation. Well, what do you do when all of a sudden this is a situation of physical abuse or perhaps adultery? Now, if all of a sudden the, the offender comes to the one who's offended in a physical abusive situation and says, you know what, Well, I, I, you know, will you forgive me? And they say, yes, but I, just, I, I'm, I can't live here right now. And then the offender says, well, look at you. You're just unforgiving. Is that the way we should look at it? Well, I don't think so. I think what, what 1 Corinthians 13, when we think about a principle of love, okay? In 1 Corinthians 13, when it, when it gives this perspective of what genuine love is like, Notice that in this verse in verse, verse number four, he says, "Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentment or, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things." So are we to relegate ourselves in a situation? of of compromise because the person could, could potentially be in physical danger. And you say, and the offender says, well, love believes all things. If you just believe me and trust me, then everything would be fine. See, but can I just say to you, while love believes all things, genuine love is not foolish or stupid. When there has been patterns of sin that have impacted people and even when forgiveness is granted and, and, and enacted, that provision for reconciliation doesn't always mean initially, well, you just have to go back to that household that you're fearful of being in and you have to put yourself in the place of danger. No, what we do, because we genuinely love and we genuinely are merciful and we're making way through forgiveness that, that this relationship can be mended, that we are watching for the fruits of genuine repentance and we're allowing a form of separation and at a time period so that that can take place and the more genuine fruit is seen, the more, the more that they can believe they will, they will continue to trust that this person is different than who they said they were. So we have to be mindful because some people are given advice at various components when it comes to abusive situations or even adultery or other certain forms of sin and say things like to a woman, well, you know, if you'd really be submissive, then this probably wouldn't have happened. Could you imagine hearing those words from someone in the Christian community? If you would have just submitted, then he wouldn't have done this. Oh, that's painful. And even if that person is genuinely repentant, we have to be wise enough to protect and care for the innocent in ways that help bring them along, which is why we often would give a growth plan. And we would say, you know what? We need to see elements of put off and put on in Jesus Christ so that we know that we're not putting you back into physical harm or physical impairment in the relationship so that you can thrive in reconciliation and restoration? Well, these certainly are some big questions, aren't they? Look for fruits of genuine repentance. Don't be hesitant or resistant to forgive. Be a person who's filled with mercy. Be mindful of the advice that you give to people who are in in agony because of various forms of sin. Don't give some superficial advice Protect the innocent. Be be just in the way and wise in the way that you implement and, and apply love because love believes all things, but it's not stupid. And we want to look for growth in a way that is pleasing and honorable before the Lord. Luke 17 says again, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times, in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you and I must forgive. Because we remember that in the process, forgiveness is the act of pardoning sin with a heart of mercy for the sake of restoration in order to glorify God by putting his mercy on display. That's what we're about to enjoy. We take the Lord's table together today as I close in prayer and the worship team comes, we have been given this benevolent amount of mercy. And the Lord's table is a reminder and a remembrance of the mercy displayed to us. That we have a relationship with God. That we can have good relationships with other people because Jesus was willing to forgive us. So we too then should forgive our brothers and sisters. The more we live like this, the, more, the stronger our relationship with God becomes, the stronger our relationship becomes with one another. Let's pray as they come and as we go down, you can come and part- Come grab the elements, return to your seat and I'll come back and lead us through them, let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we don't deserve it and yet your kindness to us through the work of your son, has been displayed so that we can experience joy in a life that's not filled with guilt from our shame or the, or the feelings of shame that correspond with it. Lord, that we can find joy instead. Lord, help us now. Lord, we must examine our hearts. Lord, you call us to do that because this is an important element. We don't take this lightly. Lord, we we come before you now. Lord, help us search our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.